was during the time of the Black Plague, and there were two rounds of the plague. Uh, the first one, uh, the first round actually took 60% of the population. The second round took 20%, and she lived through these two rounds of the Black Death. And uh, after the second round had nearly passed, she penned these words, and I'm paraphrasing, but essentially she said, um, things are beginning to get back to normal now in fits and in waves, but if we have learned anything from what we've been through in the Black Death, you wouldn't know it by looking around. Things are getting back to normal now, you know, sometimes in fits and in waves, but if we had learned anything from what we had been through, you wouldn't know it by looking around. I wonder what the Black Death was meant to teach the people of Julian's time. I wonder what she was like referring to. There's a sense in which you read that or you consider that and it kind of resonates, but why? I wonder what the pandemic, uh, what, what, what it could teach us. I wonder if we are at risk of missing it, whatever that is, as we sort of rush back into life as it was. I'm sure that the answer to that is very nuanced for different people, for each unique person. But generally speaking, I wonder if sickness, disease, and pandemics, and plagues, I wonder if just generally speaking, they have something to remind us about the reality of our not being God. I wonder if generally speaking, they have something to remind us of just in the simple truth that we're creatures with limits, we're not invincible, and that this life is not all that there is. Our world is kind of, you know, it's, it's constantly saying in a variety of different ways, like hustle, 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 prove your worth, find the next new shiny thing to be about, and then like get on with making that your brand, go after it hard. You know, for some people it's find that next new house or car or toy or hobby, or find the next job or degree or certification find the next new idea or thought or cause and make every waking moment of your life about achieving that thing or build a brand about it all around you. In a way, like, make it your God. See if it will save you. And of course, there's nothing wrong with setting goals. There's nothing wrong with working hard towards goals. But what I'm talking about is like the spirit of the hustle, <laughs> right? That spirit to like push and to prove, to push and to prove that you are somebody, somebody worthy of love. The spirit of the hustle is perhaps one of the uh, greatest threats to spiritual formation, to the formation of your soul. Because it's built on this lie that you are what you do. Hustle has a way of kind of like, um, 
just drowning out the reality of any limits whatsoever. When you are in that mode, it's like there are no limits. There's no such thing as limits. It has a way of like covering over our limitations, fooling us with this lie that if, we'll, if we just work hard enough, if we're just smart enough, that we're going to get over, we're going to conquer whatever ailments we have. We'll be happy. We'll finally be somebody. That it's an interesting phenomenon. I'm sure you've read about it, but a recent NPR article said this. As pandemic life recedes in the U.S., people are leaving their jobs in search of more money, more flexibility, and more happiness. It's leading to a dramatic increase in resignations, a record 4 million people quit their jobs in April alone. Nothing wrong with quitting your job. What stands out to me in the quote, though, is this. People in search of what? More. More money, more flexibility, more happiness. These are not bad things, but I wonder if this is just, in many cases, just the spirit of the hustle with some fresh lipstick on it. Like, as human beings, when we experience trauma, now I, I understand, trauma can be like with a, a lowercase t or an uppercase t, there's a lot of ways in which human beings experience trauma, but like, just baseline trauma is when you are, you find yourself in a situation and you cannot flee from it, and you cannot fix it. And communally, I think it's safe to say we went through some trauma together, right? We found ourselves, we still find ourselves to some extent, you know, in a global pandemic. We can't flee from it. We can't fix it. And on a spectrum, that's, that's trauma. And when we experience trauma, it's, it's, um, it is just the human tendency to either want to run away or to slap a bunch of Band-Aids on, right? I mean, it's just our fight or flight. It's just our survival brain. It's just the way in which our bodies say, like, I am either going to distract myself right now or I am going to medicate myself right now because this pain is too much. And I wonder if when Julian of Norwich said of the plagues, like, if they taught us everything, you wouldn't know by looking around, I wonder if she was referencing that human tendency to just avoid pain caused by trauma because sometimes it just feels easier to distract or to medicate than to admit our losses, let alone feel them, let alone move through them. Sometimes it just feels better to run away or slap some Band-Aids on than to actually do that work of grieving what we have lost. I wonder if a good question for us to ask right now is one that Parker Palmer posed when he said this, is the life I'm living the same as the life that wants to live in me? Because a lot of times the life I'm living is the life that is based on a lot of expectations on me, self-imposed, all around, and all too often I'm living a life I'm expected to live. 
rush and expectation, expectation, it can lead to exhaustion and burnout and weariness. So if pandemics can teach us anything, I wonder if it's just something around our limits, that we're not God, that we have limitations, that every one of us has limits, that our families have limits, that our marriages have limits, that our planet has limits. We're finite. God's the one who's infinite. We're limited. God is the one who's limitless. Limitations are exactly what we need to probably listen to in order to know who we really truly are because you can't really know who you truly are if you don't know who you really are not. If I'm trying to be everything to everyone, I can't be who God's asking me to be, who God's made me to be. And in our passage today that Laura Lee just read from Ephesians, the ancient wisdom of the scriptures just reminds us of who we are. And in a nutshell, what this passage is all about, I love how John Stott talks about this passage. He says, this passage says, we are God's new society. That's the phrase he uses. I heard someone say that, you know, in the past, people would make money to build a better society, and now people make money to find their identity or form an identity, a self-identity. Kind of an interesting, interesting observation. In other words, what, what they're observing is today it's popular, it's a very popular message to basically say, look inside yourself to determine who you are and then hustle to be true to that and to prove your worth. But the Bible actually has something else to say, that you don't determine who you are by looking within, that the truest thing about you is not what you say about you, that the truest thing about you is what God says about you. And every time God says, you are my beloved child, precious in my eyes, when you hear God's voice saying something other than that, that's not the voice of God. In a similar way, like, the truest thing about you is not what others say about you. It's not what culture says about you. It's not what your school or family or job or friends say about you. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. In other words, it's like your identity, it's something that is received, not achieved. Our passage says this, remember that you were separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. But now, Christ Jesus, you who once were far, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once you were far away, now you've been brought near. How have you been brought near? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, it's interesting because this passage was written to the Ephesians, a church in Ephesus, and in that city at that time, there were all sorts of different factions and ideologies and groups of people. So politically speaking, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Economically speaking, it was a huge commercial port city. A lot of money flowing through there. Religiously, it was the headquarters for the cult of the goddess Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the uh, temple of Diana. And now, 
here in, in Ephesians, we see now you have this new Jesus society. Jesus' new society. And so the church is gathering people from all these various groups and unifying them together. And that's what Paul is talking about. So Paul says to this diverse body of the church, remember, you, you were separate from Christ, without hope and without God. And now, in Christ, you who were once far away, you've been brought near. How have you been brought near? By the blood of Christ. In other words, like this is the thing that unifies. This is the main thing. God has brought us near. Never take it for granted. Don't forget. And never give up on someone else who has not yet been brought near. This is what unifies us in God's new society. And it's interesting that Paul says, we're brought near by the blood of Christ and not, it's, inter it's just interesting that he doesn't say by the resurrection. That we're brought near to God by the blood of Christ. What is the blood of Christ? By the suffering of Christ. By the willing suffering of Christ. It's just, it's like one more reminder that the way of Jesus was not a military conquest, like shedding blood to win victory. It was through the blood of the feet that you were brought near. Jesus, in other words, Jesus did not power up to get his way. He paved a new way through his blood. So the willing suffering of Christ is what creates this new society, is what creates this unique humility in the people following Jesus. Because we're united by this historic event of the cross. So this is your identity. It's received. It's not achieved. You don't earn it. It's yours in Christ. And then the passage in Ephesians goes on to say Jesus is your peace. He is our peace. And he's tearing down the dividing walls of hostility. Now, remember that around the temple in Jerusalem at that time, there was a dividing wall to keep the Gentiles out. And Jesus tore that down, giving all people access to God. And Jesus actually is tearing down all sorts of walls. Like in the church in Ephesus, they're working to tear down walls too. They had to tear down walls between, you know, conflicts in the church they had people who were working for the Roman Empire, and they had people who were suffering under the Roman Empire. They had to tear down the divides of wealthy mer merchants in the church alongside slaves. They had to tear down the walls of religions and cultures and philosophies, on and on. These walls were very real, very messy, very difficult. But those walls, those labels, were no longer what defined a person in God's new society. The people in God's new society are united in Christ, all having been brought near to God through the blood of Jesus. So the last thing is just in verse 22 we read this. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And John Stott, talking about this passage, talks about the three temples that are going on in this passage. So first, Paul is giving this letter in Ephesus, in the city, 
where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was, which was the Temple of Diana. So in other words, there's this pagan temple in the city. Then in Jerusalem, secondly, there's another temple, the Jewish temple, which was built by Herod the Great. That's like the religious temple. So you got this pagan temple, you got this religious temple. And both of those temples are like barricading itself against, well, the Jewish one is barricading itself against the Gentiles. Um, both of them are not the place where the Spirit of God is dwelling. They're designed to be, by their followers, a divine residence, but they're empty of the living God. So Paul is saying, like, now God has created a new temple, a dwelling place for his spirit to live, and you know what it is? It's you. It's a new society, God's new temple. It's the church. It is his redeemed people scattered all throughout the world. They are now God's home on earth. And God's temple is growing as people are added. And that means we're God's temple here on earth. Like Platt Park Church, one of many thousands of places. God is gathering his citizens and his children to be his temple on earth. And it's by you being here in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, that that new society is seen in the world. The presence of Jesus dwelling here on earth. It's almost like each and every person is like a block in the temple that Jesus is skillfully placing and gathering so that God can dwell here. So as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as members of the family of God, as the building blocks that create this temple where God dwells, here are just a couple practical things. Number one, remember your identity as the beloved one. Like when you sense in yourself that sort of spirit of hustling rising up within you, gotta figure it all out. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Remember whose you are, that you don't have to try so hard. And secondly, remember Jesus is our peace. Christ is tearing down dividing walls of hostility. And as our divided world keeps finding different ways for who is in and who is out, may we be the ones who say, ah, but we see. We see the day off in the distance where we're going to stand at the eddies of this life. And we're going to peer across into eternity. And we're going to see a love that if we could see it right now would make us cry because it's so deep, it's so wide, it's so pure, it's so totally other than anything we've ever tasted or seen. And on that day, all the divides just kind of get washed away as we're swept up in the eternal current of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune love of God. So in other words, as the divides rise up, May we be the people who say, I'm going to transcend the labels because I see that. I've got my eyes fixed there. So as I work to renew all that is broken here and now, I do it with a spirit that's got my eyes fixed out there. 
do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with my God because I see that day when God is making all things right, when God is making all things new. And then as the world opens back up, just be aware of that voice that is loud in our ears saying, pick up the next new shiny thing and hustle to get it now. And instead, let's be wiser for what we've seen. Let's be wiser for what we have been through. Let us be people who remember, ah, yeah, we're people who live within limits. And we'll accept those because we've seen them in movies. We're citizens of a strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, we're the sheep. And we're so in need every moment of every day of our good shepherd to guide us each step of the way. Let's pray together as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, you know our hearts better than we know our hearts. You see our griefs better than we can admit them even to ourselves. So we pray that you would give us courage to breathe deep of your goodness, to not try so hard, but to trust in your grace, your grace to be present to guide us in whatever we may face, whatever may come. Would you give us wisdom, God, to not just forget what we've been through, but to take with us in wisdom the lessons of the season that we've been through together. And would you give us courage to live the life that wants to be lived within our lives, the life of you. Would you give us courage to follow you, to obey you, to trust you? Jesus, we love you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Everybody everywhere said, Amen.